brand new effort uh, this morning. We want to start something new. We want to begin a slow walk through the book of Jonah. Uh, through the book of Jonah. And Jonah is one of the minor prophets. Uh, he's, uh, we call him minor because they wrote less than the guys that we call the major prophets. So it's not a value distinction. It's a, it's a classification of volume. Uh, but uh, there are 12 minor prophets. Jonah is one of them. Uh, in fact, during Jesus's day, um, those, those little writings the, of the minor prophets were kind of collected together into one corpus, one book called the Book of the Twelve. And so if you ever hear, if you ever read about something like that, the Book of the Twelve, that's the 12 minor minor prophets. Um, but by the time that we get to our English Bibles, they're broken apart again and kind of stand on their own. And so, um, and because they're on the smaller side, well, let's just be honest, they're, they're kind of hard to find sometimes, right? This is going to be a great series for you to learn where Jonah is, all right? Uh, I'm willing to bet that some of you might struggle with that a little bit. I'll just be honest. I struggle with that a little bit because I tend to like to grab chunks of pages as I turn. Uh, uh, but those of you who have a Bible app, you'll just type in Jonah and it'll be done. All right, so, so uh, Jonah, um, Jonah is only four short chapters. Um, only four short chapters. And so if you were to just sit down and try to read through it in one sitting, it w- actually wouldn't take you very long. And you can just knock it out in, in a moment. Uh, and so, um, but it's my hope that we can stretch our effort of looking at it uh, into something that lasts a couple of months. Uh, our plan right now is to take it right up to when we would shut things down for uh, digging into Advent season. And I know some that makes some of y'all nervous thinking about the fact that Advent is not that far away. Um, so like we just started fall. It's the first Sunday of October. Advent's coming. It's always coming. Whether you're ready for it or not. It's coming, all right? So Hobby Lobby decorated it for it like four months ago. So it's coming. But we got a nice little fall series in front of us. We're going to look at the book of Jonah. But some of you are starting to wonder, though, because you noticed that I didn't tell you to turn to Jonah. I told you to tell, turn to where? Second Kings. And so trust, you're going to have to trust me. We will eventually get to Jonah. It's my plan to get to Jonah today. Barely. <laughs> Barely. All right? Um, But in order to properly understand Jonah when we get to Jonah, I think we need to set the stage well. I think we need to establish some things and and get some things figured out. In order for us to understand things when we get there, I think we first need to spend a little time looking at something else that I think might be massively important in order to properly understand the book of Jonah. And so uh, we got to set our stage well. So if you don't have uh, much of a church background, or, or, or maybe you, you, you know, your church background didn't involve a lot of attention to the Old Testament, uh, that, that stage that we're setting is really a history lesson, right? And how many of you just love biblical history? Like how many of y'all, re- yeah, most of the hands are down, right? <laughs> Some of y'all, super excited about it but you're in the minority, okay? All right, most of y'all, your eyes, when you hear the word history, you just start to glaze over, and you're like, ah, I can't do this. I promise we'll try to make this interesting. I'll try to make it fun. So how far do we need to rewind the tape? Well, I think the answer to that question is the book of Exodus. We're not going to turn there. We'll just tell the story. Uh, but the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, right? You've heard that story before. Maybe you come across that story. Whether you learned that story in Sunday school or the Prince of Egypt movie or somewhere else, one of the things that you probably learned about the Exodus story is that the Israelites were grumbling even before they left the gate. You remember that? It's not exactly a fun day. They're complaining as they're walking out of the land of Egypt, as they're being freed from slavery, they've already got a complaint or two. They are rescued miraculously. 
They are fed and watered miraculously. They are protected miraculously. They get through the Red Sea and they got that pillar of fire, right? Big deals. And mixed into every single moment of that story is the people who seem really not to appreciate all the good things that God is doing for them. I mean, isn't that the tone of the story? That even as God is turning the world upside down to do something for them, overthrowing empires and pausing the rules of nature, they've got a complaint on their lips. To read the, the account of the Exodus correctly is to understand that there is an extreme amount of grace shown to God's special called out people. It's not a have to. God's not backed into a corner on this. He's doing something they don't deserve. They're brought to the foot of Mount Sinai. They're given God's law. Now that God has saved them, rescued them, and he's calling them his special treasured possession, here is how you will represent me. He gives them the law. And, and because sinners are going to do what sinners can't seem to help but doing, God also gives them a system of priests and sacrifices to continually make atonement for their junk, for their sin, right? God provides a way for a sinful people, people who can't seem to help being sinful. He provides a way for them to draw near to the holiness of who he is. In other words, they are preemptively shown grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Right? They're wandering around. They get to the edge of the promised land. And what happens? Those of you who know the story. They don't want to go in. Why? Because there's big people in there, and they can probably fight well, and I don't want to deal with that. They don't care that God has done astounding things to get them to this point. They don't trust his goodness in this moment. And so they even argue in this moment that it would be better for them to turn around, go back to Egypt, and be slaves again. Let the record show, sin makes you stupid. They'd rather return to their slavery than trust God to provide what they need. It's about as dumb as you can get. And so if you're God in this moment, if you're sitting in his seat, how do you respond to them? I mean, I've got some ideas, but none of them go well for Israel. Right? But what does the story tell us? Instead of wiping them out and starting over from scratch, something God not only threatened to do, but it would be completely justified in doing. It's what I would do. But instead of wiping them out and starting over, uh, God instead causes them to wander around in the wilderness for a generation until that generation dies off, and then their kids get to go in. Oh, and by the way, he continues to feed them and water them and protect them throughout this 40 years. Can we, can we just be honest? None of us, myself especially, have that level of compassion. You different? I'm not. I don't care how compassionate you think you are. Neither of us have that in us. I know I don't. But after a generation of wandering, the Israelites finally get into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? And everything's just pure joy and bliss from that moment on, right? Wrong. Israel continues to sin egregiously, and thereby they continue to make a gigantic mess out of things. And so what does God do? 
He gives them the judges, warrior king figures who lead the people back towards righteousness, back towards blessing, only to watch that judge eventually die off and the nation of Israel fall right back again into their same old patterns of sin. Literally hundreds of years of the same old repetitious sin, repent, repeat. Sin, repent, repeat. So what do they do? They cry out, we want a king like all the other nations. We want to be lorded over by a king like all the pagan peoples around us. That's their answer. That's how they're going to fix the problem. And what does God do? He gives them what they want. He's gracious to them and gives them what they ask for. It's a terrible idea. Absolutely terrible idea. And God goes into a lot of details about how and why it's a terrible idea. But God is gracious. He gives them what they ask for. And so a man named Saul is anointed as king over Israel, right? And why is Saul picked? Because he's taller than everybody else and he fights good. Think that's going to go well? We don't pick politicians any differently today. Man, we're just as dumb as Israel was. What could, what could possibly go wrong with a selection like that? And so as you would likely expect, even if you don't know the story, Israel continues to sin. And now they've got a really sinful king sitting at the front, leading them from the front. They dig the hole deeper. What a day. Saul eventually dies. David becomes the next king. And and David is special, right? Because now, now we have a man after God's own heart sitting on the throne, right? And things are good now, right? And this time the answer is yes, but also no. <laughs> also very much no. David is by a landslide far more righteous and God-focused of a king than Saul ever was. But David is also a murderer and an adulterer. Like, those are issues, right? A little bit of a problem. Later in his life, David wants to build God a temple. God tells him, no. I don't want a temple from you. It's not because God doesn't deserve the fanciest of temples. I think he totally does. But, uh, but because David had too much blood on his hands is what God tells him. In other words, God didn't want his name mixed up with David's name. No, no, you don't get to build a temple for me. I don't want it from you. After David dies, Solomon, his son, steps into the picture. And I mean, we know some things about Solomon. We've been reading his Proverbs each week. Dude, smart. Must be knocking it out of the park, right? The wisest man to ever live. Surely Solomon is absolutely nailing this stuff, am I right? Wrong. Solomon was incredibly wise, and he used that wisdom to gain incredible wealth and incredible influence on the world stage. He expanded the borders of Israel to the biggest that they had ever been. But he also seems to have never actually internalized any of his great wisdom, never seemed to actually let any of that great wisdom change who he was on the inside, change his heart. And so uh, it, it never sunk in deeper than just kind of the surface level. And so by the time that Solomon dies, the most successful and prosperous king in the history of God's people looks a whole lot more more like Pharaoh down in Egypt. Is that a problem? See, what would have seemed to a Jewish mind as the full realization of every single thing 
that God had promised them when he was rescuing them out of slavery. I mean, the borders are growing, the money is flowing, and people are starting to put respect on Israel's name, right? That period of history, that period of history is equally marked by flagrant idolatry, political alliances that God expressly forbid, and what seems in the story like some slave labor. It's come full circle. There's terrible, terrible sin in Israel's camp. And yet despite their terrible sin, God was gracious. He was gracious to them. His compassion on them was boundless. Solomon dies and his sons are bigger morons than he was. And so they immediately do something dumb and the kingdom splits in two. Seriously, go read the story. They refuse to listen to the wise counselors, and it's like, nah, I'm going to do my own thing, and the kingdom breaks in half. Ten tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah, and from that moment on, from that moment in history on, the northern kingdom of Israel never again has a good king. All of them, 19 kings over a span of about 250 years, all of them, we are told, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Every single one of them, that's the drum that the, the books of Second Kings uh, just continues to bang. Every time it talks about one of the kings of the northern kingdom, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Over and over and over again. Now, why would all of that history matter for our purposes this morning? Like, why, why does that matter as we introduce a series on the book of Jonah? It's because Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in the very middle of that 250 years. There's a, there's a pattern developing here that we need to see. Israel has great, great sin. Israel has blatant idolatry. And yet God is good. God is compassionate. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfastness. When you think of a prophet of the Lord, what's the picture that tends to pop right into your head? Like, like what are they proclaiming? What do they look like? If you're, if you're anything like me at all, like you've got kind of a picture-filled imagination, you think they look pretty haggardly and are probably yelling at, running around all the place, yelling at people at the top of their lungs to repent. Like, that's the picture I get of an Old Testament prophet, right? Are you, are you that different from me? They're a little unkempt. They look a little, they probably need a shower, and they're just, they're hoarse all the time because they're constantly telling people to, to, like, give up their sin. And it's here, it's here that we get to start looking at our text for the morning. 2 Kings chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. And he reigned 70 years. He did, was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. Verse 3, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. 
Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. All right, let's call time out there. All right, so the writer of Kings here, he kind of focuses his attention on a northern king named Jehoahaz, right? And so, like, those of you who are having kids soon, consider Jehoahaz as, your, as the, the name you're going to give your kid. Fahiz, you got a chance. There's, it's not too late. All right, I know you're going with Wesley. Consider Jehoahaz. He's not a nice guy, but it sounds fun. All right. No, no. Jehoahaz led the northern kingdom of Israel into a deeper idolatry, into a deeper embracing of their public sin. And we're told that as a punishment for that action, that God allows them to be harassed by, a na- by the neighboring country of Syria. All right? That they're just kind of constantly at the borders and picking off little fights. That they're constantly being harassed by the neighboring country of Syria. And that harassment was apparently harsh enough. And so Jehoahaz, um, he eventually cries out to God to rescue them. And what's incredible about the story, what's absolutely insane about the story, is that God listens. Right? He's going to put an end to it. And so how does, God, how does God put an end to the harassment? Verse 5. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a what? A savior or deliverer. So that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Okay, so we are not told verbatim. But there are a thousand historical reasons to believe that that Savior, that Deliverer that comes to Israel's rescue is in a young and emerging empire called Assyria. Those are different countries. Syria, Assyria. Assyria is not a big deal yet. Okay, I'm sorry, Siri. (laughs) Probably going to happen a lot this series. Assyria is not a big deal yet. They're about to be. Oh, they are about to be. We think that the Assyrian army is not only involved in actually fighting back the uh, Aramean Syrian armies that had been harassing Israel, but we're also pretty certain that it's their emerging presence as Assyria gets bigger and bigger and more daunting and more daunting. We think it's their presence on the world stage is what keeps everyone else around Israel distracted and like not focused on Israel for a while. The other nations that were playing the, the bully to Israel, they couldn't expend time and energy on Israel anymore. They had to divert their attention elsewhere. And so because of Assyria, Israel now finds itself in this new time of peace and freedom. Based on everything we know about the nation of Israel, how do you think they use that opportunity? Tim, the answer is they delve deeper into their sin. They've been rescued by a Savior and now comfortably flying under the radar. And so what do they do? Verse 6. Nevertheless, it's a massive word, huh? Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria, the false god and the worship of the false god. So follow the, the logic here. 
Israel's idolatry gets them into trouble. They cry out to God to rescue them. God actually listens and rescues them. And then in response to that rescue, they lean a little harder on their false gods. We asked the same question a little while ago, but it deserves another ask, right? Like if, if you're in God's position, if you're the one now needing to respond in this moment, what you going with? How are you responding to this little, you know, situation here? You flying off the handle? Because i got to be honest, I'm probably flying off the handle. There's a category of people in the world who like to posture themselves as being knowledgeable of the Old Testament, knowledgeable of the Bible, when they, when they really aren't. Um, and, and because of that imaginary knowledge, they try to argue things like the God of the Old Testament is just angry all the time and filled with wrath. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across that argument before. I, I certainly have. Church, it's texts like these and a thousand others like it that prove that they have literally no idea what they're talking about. No clue. The measure of patient grace shown here. The measure of compassion shown here. Boundless is the only appropriate word for what we're talking about. It's the only thing that fits. And if that weren't enough, (laughs) we can actually take it another giant step further. Turn to chapter 14. We're going to skip ahead in the story by several decades. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. I said 23. All right. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. Verse 24. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. All right, let's call time out there. So, uh, different king, but the exact same story, right? And, and the names can be really confusing here if you don't know your Old Testament history. We see Joash twice. We see Jeroboam in there twice. So, so what's going on? Um, well, there was a Joash who was king over the southern kingdom of Judah. His son Amaziah is now on the throne, so he's dead. Right? Uh, the second Joash in the story is from the north. It's different Joash, but the same, guy, uh, same name. So this Joash was from the north, and he was king uh, at a different time. He's called by another name at the end of chapter th- 13, Jehoash. I, I don't know why the change. All right? uh, but he's the son of the first bad guy we talked about. And he's now dead, too. He got his turn as a king, and now he's gone. So you got a King Joash of Judah and a King Joash of Israel. And what makes it better is that they ruled at roughly the same time period. Totally not confusing. But don't let that bog you down because they're both gone. And their sons are sitting on their respective thrones. And for the northern kingdom of Israel, that kid's name is Jeroboam. King Jeroboam II, to be more precise. He's named after the very first king of the northern kingdom, the guy who was a part of splitting the kingdom in two, the guy who led the nation of Israel into deeper sin. And just like his namesake and just like his daddy before him, he did evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord. Jeroboam II led the people of Israel deeper into idolatry and sin. He put his foot on the gas hard, actually. 
And will God continue to be aboundingly compassionate? Has his character or his promises changed? Look at verse 25. He, it's Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, who's that word? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Hey, we finally found a reference to Jonah. Told you we'd get there. I promise. Welcome to the only mention of Jonah in the Old Testament outside of the book that bears his name. That's all we got. He gets a lot more attention in the New Testament, but this is all we got on the Old Testament side of things. So, so what's old Jonah up to? Well, he's briefly mentioned here as playing a role in what Jeroboam is doing. Jeroboam is expanding the borders of Jerusalem, and he's doing so by conquest. Now that Assyria has drawn the attention away of everybody around them, he's beginning to pick off these old lands. And, and the borders that we're told about here are the same borders that we see at the beginning when the kingdom split in two. And so, and so which means, this, follow the logic here, the blatantly idolatrous northern kingdom of Israel, under the safety provided for them by the growing empire of Assyria, is now the strongest and most prosperous that they've been in over 100 years. Where do we see Jonah, the son of Amittai? Sitting in the court of the king, prophesying blessing. See, for Jonah, at this part of Israel's history, his job description was not to be the haggardly prophet preaching repentance at the top of his lungs. No, no, his job was to whisper good news of God's blessing into the ear of a wicked king. And... I'm fairly certain that that reality is going to absolutely wreck some people's idea of how God doles out blessings and curse. Am I wrong? Um, you might want to go ahead and confess this morning that they sometimes buy into the unbiblical logic that God always gives blessings to the good people and always gives curses to the bad people. Am I the only one that's ever guilty of that? It slips into that. Am I the only one out there that occasionally misrepresents the God of the Bible in my own head by making him out to be nothing more than some kind of animistic deity doling out karmic justice? I, I'm guilty of that sometimes. But listen, whether you're as guilty as me or not, the reality is that's just not how the God of the Bible actually operates. Not, not even close. Sometimes, hear me, hear me out on this, Sometimes, God gives good things to bad people. Sometimes God gives good things to the bad people. And while that may be frustrating, I know, to watch the truly wicked receive good things from the hand of the Lord, it's ultimately the best news that has ever been shared because the last time I checked, I'm not one of the good people. I'm not in that category. I like to pretend I am, but I'm not. The only way that I can put myself in the category of the good people based on anything coming out of me is if I ignore pretty much every single command of the Bible. Act like they're not there. 
We've got to pretend and try to define the rules by some other standard than God's infinite holiness. Play a little game with myself. Am I ever going to have any shot at all of coming out on top in that, in that game? See, the very first act of my salvation is a God who is determined to love the unlovely. Yours too. An aboundingly good God chose to be compassionate and gracious to the one who's done absolutely nothing to deserve it. That's the gospel. But not only has Jeroboam done nothing to earn God's favor, he seems to have even done all he can to earn God's wrath. Um, Look at verse 26. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bound or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So in case you didn't catch the logic of what the writer of Kings just said there, for no other reason but that the Lord would be vindicated as faithful. God stepped in to strengthen Israel during a time period when there was nothing about Israel worth strengthening. We're told that in his infinite goodness that God looked down on Israel with pity, with compassion, and he blessed them. In spite of their nonsense, in spite of their ridiculous and heinous sin, in spite of the fact that they were digging their own hole deeper and deeper and deeper, God looked down on them and for the sake of his faithful name said, I'm going to love you anyways. In fact, I'm going to bless you anyways. Hear me clearly, National Baptist Church. Here is the reason why we desperately need to understand a couple of chapters in 2 Kings before we can properly open up the book of Jonah. See, as we go forward, we're going to read about Jonah being given this grand calling from the Lord, right? To, to take the, 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 the message of repentance and salvation to a wicked people in a faraway country, a burgeoning empire on their north and their east, right? And in that moment, you're going to think about all the times that you've heard someone else try to teach through the book of Jonah or other times that you've read through the book of Jonah on your own. You're going to think of a storm and you're you're going to think of the big old fish, and you're going to think, try to wrap your head around just how like ruthless this young empire is or is not. And depending on your generation, you may even like imagine some scenarios from the VeggieTales movie when you saw it. But in order for any of those things to ever make any sense, in order for them to stand in the proper context, we need to consistently remember that both Jonah and his people are the recipients of an astounding grace and an abounding compassion from God long before Jonah is ever called to take that grace and compassion to anybody else. They are the recipients before they are the messengers. They are the recipients before they are the messengers. Jonah and his people are the recipients of an immeasurable blessing that they had zero business at all receiving from the hand of the God, uh, the hand of the Lord before Jonah is sent to proclaim undeserved blessings to the pagans out in Assyria. Without understanding that, Jonah doesn't make sense. In church family, it's no different for you and me. 
It's no different at all for you and me. We are just as undeserving of God's boundless compassion as Jonah was. The Bible teaches that we all fall short of God's glory, that we are owed the righteous punishment for sin, right? We are incapable of even correctly wanting to fix the problem. Christians are not the ones who have figured out a way to kind of white-knuckle ourselves into a life that God is now somehow impressed with. Now see, the Bible teaches that it is through faith in the sacrificial death of Jesus in our place that we are saved. Hear me, boundless compassion put on flesh and dwelt among us. Boundless compassion put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross to make full and final payment for sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And so, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, listen, we can fix that. We can do something about it right now. In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing set that side of time for people to have opportunity to respond to what God's word is calling them to. The way you would respond is by meeting Jesus. By placing your faith in him. I'd love to be helpful to you. When that time comes, I'm going to be standing down front there. We can talk about that. But what if you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus? How do we respond? Well, like Jonah, we are the recipients of a boundless compassion. And just like Jonah, we also have a calling on every one of our lives to be proclaimers of that boundless compassion to others. So let's finally turn to the book of Jonah this morning and see how that call plays out. This is your chance. This is where you get to show that you know where Jonah is. If you grew up doing Bible drills, you got it. Don't worry. If you're not sure, it's right after Obadiah and right before Micah. You're welcome. All right. There's a table of contents. Just use that. Jonah 1. Jonah 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to, uh, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So in the middle of Jonah living an incredibly charmed life, in the, in the middle of speaking blessing in the king's court, right? Like, who doesn't want that job? Like, it's, it's not a fun job when you got to tell the king bad news, but when you're the guy telling the king good news, you're living well, all right? Jonah's living in the court of the king, speaking blessings into this king's ear. God calls Jonah in the middle of that to take the message of repentance to the great Assyrian city of Nineveh. God has seen their evil. He intends to call them to heal. And he wants to use Jonah to do it. Israel has other prophets during this time period. Jonah's not the only man of the Lord running around there. But Jonah understands something about this calling that the other prophets probably don't get. So God calls Jonah 
And what do we see Jonah do? He runs the opposite direction. His intent is to flee from the presence of the Lord. Sin makes you stupid. We're going to spend a lot of our time over the next couple of months digging into why Jonah fled and just how futile that running away actually is. But for now, oh, for now, church, we need to see that God has not called Jonah to do anything that God has not already done for Jonah. That's step one. God has not called Jonah to do anything that he has not already done for Jonah. Jonah is the recipient of a boundless compassion who is now called to turn around and and bring the message of that boundless compassion to another group of undeserving others. So the question that we're going to repeatedly come back to over and over again in this story is simple. Who is God calling you to show an immeasurable and undeserved compassion to right now? same compassion you've already received. Sometimes, sometimes that calling is clear and obvious. Like Jonah, like you got a word from the Lord, right? Sometimes though that calling needs to be prayerfully sought out and thought through, discerned. And by beginning to pay special attention, listen, I'm pretty confident that God will eventually reveal them to you. They're there. You just have to open our eyes. And again, sometimes that calling is nothing more than just the quick draw obedience to the situation or the opportunity that's standing right in front of you with eyes already open. God puts somebody right in front of you and your, your job is to give as you have already received. Who is God calling you to take an abounding compassion to this week? Who needs to hear the message of salvation by grace through faith regardless of how undeserving they might seem to be on the surface? Or might actually be in their heart. A biblical assessment of your own soul would realize that you deserved it just as little as they do. A right assessment of yourself would put you in the category of the undeserving. So go do something with that. Right? That's our call. That's how God's people can respond to his word this morning. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in this text. And this morning, man, I think he is showing us that he has been far, far more aboundingly gracious towards us than we are even capable of wrapping our heads around. We have no idea. We have no clue. And we start to pick up pieces of that realization. That realization ought to produce in us both worship and obedience. Anything else is just running away like Jonah did. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by being obedient to Jesus in believer's baptism, or maybe it's to formally join our, our church family, or maybe, oh, maybe God is calling you to take his compassionate gospel to a faraway place like Nineveh. And it's time for you to finally and publicly say yes to that call. We can talk about that. I'm game. Whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for what is about to come in the book of Jonah. I also thank you for 
a history lesson that we often overlook in Kings. I tend to put myself in the category of the the ones who've got it figured out and are doing things in a way that are pleasing to you, but that's often rarely the case. There are times in my heart and my life that I take your blessing and I turn around and find ways to exalt myself. It's in me. But you are good. You are abounding and steadfast. You are the one who is compassionate when I don't have anything worthy of compassion. You are the one who is gracious when I don't have anything worthy of grace. We love you. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Would you call men and women into your kingdom this morning? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.